Today's episode is sponsored by The Juice, the world's largest library of sales and marketing resources curated from the best and brightest thinkers and best brands in our space. And we're using these ad spots to shout out B2B creators in the marketing world that we admire, asking a very simple but important question. What does it mean to be a modern day marketer? Today's answer comes from Sarah Pion. Sarah's done a lot of a lot of cross marketing and CX roles, including for companies like Alice, Drift, VoiceFlow, and today as the head of marketing strategy at Dandy. Being a modern marketer, in my mind, is questioning the status quo, but having an answer to how to fix it. Because anyone today can say that email is dead, or anyone can say that we shouldn't be tracking MQLs, or we shouldn't have KPIs. It's very trendy right now to say that you shouldn't be doing something one way or another, but they rarely give an alternative to what marketing teams should be doing instead. And so I think a modern marketer to me is someone who questions the status quo and has an answer to how to fix it and how to modernize it and how to make it applicable to today's day and age. You can get some of Sarah's best and brightest thinking on her creator page on The Juice, or you can follow her on Twitter using the links in your show notes. And be sure to check out The Juice for free at thejuicehq.com. Hey, it's Jay, and today we're running a bonus episode. It's a guest appearance of mine on another show, a refreshing conversation not typical of the usual interviews we've grown accustomed to hearing in the work-slash-career-slash-life-success space, because this other show has an actual refreshing premise. It's called Two Pages with MBS, and both of those pieces of the name are worth describing to you quickly, starting with MBS. MBS stands for Michael Bungay Stanier. He's the author of the book, The Coaching Habit, which has sold over a million copies, as well as two other books, The Advice Trap and his latest, How to Begin. As you know, my rally cry to others is keep making what matters. Well, How to Begin is subtitled, Start Doing Something That Matters. This this seems like fate. MBS was a Rhodes Scholar helped create a book in partnership with Seth Godin, which raised more than $400,000 for Malaria No More, and previously founded a training and development company called Box of Crayons. He's also just a genuinely curious interviewer and a super sharp thinker, using his powers to help invite others to make things that matter. So recently, MBS invited me onto his show, Two Pages, to read two pages of a book that transformed me and my storytelling and honestly this very show unthinkable that's just the power of the refreshing premise as you're about to hear mbs describe as i hand over the mic to him to welcome you to his chat with me and just a heads up there is some harsh language in the pages i read from my book of choice so when i get to that part if you're not interested in hearing that language or you're with kids maybe just skip ahead okay with that out of the way i hope you enjoy Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. And welcome in particular if you're a new listener. We've got a bunch of new people coming in and listening to the podcast, so welcome. I'm truly delighted that you're here. Now, Jay Kunzo is also a podcaster like me, and he's one who I look up to because he has challenged the way I think about making about creating, and also about success. 
His core podcast is called Unthinkable, and it's billed as the American life for creative work. But for many years, he hosted another one called Three Clips, where he all got very meta and analyzed three clips from other podcasts and talked about why they worked. Now, Two Pages with MBS actually was featured there in one of the final episodes that Jay hosted back in November 2021, in case you're curious. But believe me, I'm still sweating a little having Jay come on as a guest for my podcast because he knows what makes for a good podcast. Now when I appear on other shows, people go, wait, you analyze other shows with other hosts? Like, what, what do I do when I have you on my show? And I'm like, it's, it's fine. I'm not judging. It's great. We're all, we're all out there trying to do meaningful things. Now, joking aside, Jay isn't here to take shows apart. Instead, he's actually looking for something very specific in the three clips. And this is something that guides his own creative work. I believe that creativity happens in the minutia. It's, I know we put it up on a pedestal and I certainly do sometimes, but it's become known as big. I got to pull a big stunt or do something big. And if I can't do that, if I can't act like the heroes of mine, I guess I'm not creative. And I just think it unfolds in these really tiny moments. Now, if you're wondering what the tiny moments look like in practice, well, the two pages that Jay's going to read for us has a pretty profound example. Now, here's what Jay told me that shook me up in terms of how I was thinking about success for the podcast. We're so focused on being visible that I think we've forgotten to try and be memorable, but I think that's actually the job. Be memorable. Be memorable. That's, that's nice, isn't it? And he put it a slightly different way another time when he was talking to me, which is like, how do you make your podcast somebody's favorite? Not that it's just like, but it's like, this is a favorite podcast of mine or a favorite thing of mine. It's all too easy to get into the, oh, I've, got to, I've got to churn stuff out if you're a maker or a creator and you feel like you have an obligation to your audience. I just see so much settling or uh, focusing in the wrong places to try and elevate our, our creative work, whether we're marketers or solo creators or entrepreneurs uh, or leaders. And so I'm on a bit of a, a mission to try and help people make what matters most to their careers and their companies and their communities. Make what matters most. We're going to come back to that, I promise. Now, for someone to feel very strongly about something, there's usually a moment in their past where they have their heart broken. And for Jay, it was working at Google. And he got great marks in college. He got into his dream job in ad sales soon after that. But three years on, the dream had definitely soured a little bit. I had this, um, this friend send me a YouTube video, which I watched a bunch of times throughout the day. And then when I went home, I showed my then roommates this video. And I was super excited to show him this YouTube video. And, and, and when I hit play, a pre-roll ad started. And it was also before the skip button at that point. So I, A, yes. felt really dumb. And B, had a very <laughs> random thought, which was, damn you, Eric. Because Eric right. was my colleague at Google who convinced the advertiser to run pre-roll ads. And I'm like getting the fruit of his labor. And then I realized, oh no, I do this job. I am affecting other people this same way. And given mm. the scale of the work we do, this is potentially millions of people having a slightly worse moment in their day because of my work. And yeah. like we would rationalize why it was a good experience. Like, I mean, I had colleagues get excited about Google offering an ad program that was a survey instead of a video ad. And you'd, you'd answer a question before your video. And they're like, it's a great, it's a wonderful experience for the customer. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I want to be the video, not the ad interrupting it. You know, I want right. to create that. 
type of work. Yeah. And I'm just convincing other people to create interruptions. And so yeah. I'd been thinking about quitting for a while and I quit and I got into this field called content marketing where I was able to create, yes, in a business context, um, but, I, but I sort of never looked back from there. What was the moment when you stumbled over this idea of resonance, which seems to, to light you up at the moment? I mean, I'd heard little bits and pieces of like yeah. some insurgent thinking when I was working in marketing, you know, even doing content mm. marketing, I was surrounded by a lot of lowbrow content and afterthought yeah. work and settling or, you know, even just good intentioned work, but people didn't have the skills, the direction, the mentorship, the, yeah. the budget and buy-in from their executives. And so I'm surrounded by this content and I'm like, why are we doing it this way? What is going on? And every so often you hear a soundbite on a slide or, you know, in a blog post where people go, you know, I, I don't want to make people like stuff. I want to make people, I want to make stuff people like. It's like, oh, okay, that's, there's a thing there. There's something there's there. There's a thing, yeah. Uh, you know, where I remember being, even in school, like having teachers, good teachers read literature to you in a way that's emotional yeah. and performative. And you're like, wow, that, that really hit me. Like where I live, this is an emotion-driven job. This is a way to make people feel and make you feel, quite frankly, as a creator of the work. And so I, it always kind of been simmering. Um, but then I, I just, I had this, this conversation once with a friend of mine who's like a, both a mentor and a good buddy who runs a tech company uh, here in Boston where I live. And I was pouring out my heart and soul to him. And he, he looked at me and he's like, Jay, the reason you can't stand the status quo of business is because you're somebody who's bothered by suck. And I, <laughs> I was like, I love the phrase. I was like, sure. Right. I know. But as part of me was like, that's it. So why don't I send up a little flare gun to the world yeah. to see if anyone else comes out of hiding because they may be afraid mm. of speaking this out loud, but I feel this way. Like the thing we accept, the status quo, whatever the convention is, the, the inertia of business or marketing or what have you, it, it's just sitting wrong with me. And I'm sure other people feel this way, but maybe they don't feel empowered to say it. Maybe they don't have yeah. the, the privilege that I have to say it or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So I started making this podcast called Unthinkable, which was trying to push people to think differently or better about the conventional thinking, to, to break from it, to make what matters most. And slowly by slowly, I do mean it was slowly, but some people started to say, oh my God, thank you for saying this. Like you're speaking to my soul. This is yeah. it. And I realized like, that's the end game. It's not 10,000 downloads. It's five people saying things with passion as signal you should keep going. So that's that to me, that's resonance. So let me push back on this a little, Jay, because on this, there's one part of me agreeing furiously with everything you're saying, which is like, life's too short, you know, try and transcend the suck. But <clears throat> there's also reality around needing to earn a living, needing to be in an organization, needing to find an audience and, and kind of have an audience, you know, a thousand true fans who could fund you in some way. And one way of hearing what you're saying is like it's like disappear into your artistic cave and and create beauty and create elegance and transcend the physical world how do you how do you walk the fine line between what reality demands of you and this call to create art that has resonance i i just think creativity is a form of leadership like i think this idea that mm. you can't create meaningful art and also contribute positively to change whether yeah. it's a for-profit organization or industry or communally and societally i, I just yeah. think we're i think what we're doing here is we're putting creativity and or art in the category of 
self-expression with no other purpose. I think, right. A, it's really hard to self-express and have nobody say, oh, wow, that's for <laughs> me, right? Uh, your, right? your close loved ones, someone, someone on the internet, et cetera, yeah. especially today where you can access people so easily. But more so, I think it's this, you know, this process of saying, here where we stand is not going to cut it any longer. This mm. is broken. Something about this isn't sitting well with me. I think in the distance, I see something better. Let's call that the mountain peak. And I have no idea how to get it. And so I'm going to show up every day, every week, every edition, episode, article, you name it, to take a swing at the jungle between here and the mountain. And I have no idea how to get there, but I'd like to. If you believe that, if you're like, it's yeah. not good now, it could be better, then join me. I don't have all the answers. I'm not an expert. I'm an explorer. And that exploration unfolding over time yeah. is the creative process. So when you have this sort of vision for the future, and I do mean for the future, not of the future, not like peering mm. into your crystal ball, yeah. it's saying, right. I want to build towards that. That's what I want to yeah. be the reality. Then you get to invite other people who feel similarly. And instead of going in a hole somewhere, like you suggested, and trying to create something and then maybe pop out six months later, magically, <laughs> things get better. You tell people, you're like, you know, writing is a good example. I am writing yeah. whatever it is, my newsletter, my podcast, et cetera. I am writing to try and understand. I'm not writing yeah, because nice. I already do. Let me ask you this then, because what you're, what you're asking people to do is take a stand for the work that they're doing, which, and anytime you take a stand, you, it takes courage. Um, and knowing your love of stories and the archetype of what it makes a great story, I'm wondering if there was a, a mentor for you who showed you what courage looks like in a situation like this. I've gotten very many digital mentors, as many of us do, where you maybe don't interact yeah. or interact digitally. And, um, you know, but a few personal ones come to mind. You know, I, I think about John Jack Shred, uh, Mr. Shred, my high school English teacher. And Mr. Shred or the. <laughs> oh, I love the high school English oh, teachers. I've got a few of those myself. The yeah. Shredder. So here's this short guy, <laughs> this kind of like very short guy with like a little like mop of gray and black hair and big glasses that would kind of bounce along as he bounced along the halls and yeah. he'd get really red in the face when he got passionate about something a little sweaty <laughs> and uh he was like a, an avid cyclist uh i went to an mm. all-boy catholic school in, in high school right uh, in connecticut and um so his tie would always be a little disheveled and loose and but he was a stickler so so a lot of people who had him knew him as the stickler who would measure the margins of the paper for the essay you mm. submitted and go to that extreme but i knew him as an inspirer because I remember yeah. watching him read like Huck Finn and we had oh, this yeah. little dinky annex outside the high school with a few classrooms. And that's where I had, I think, junior year English with him. And he'd read Huck Finn in such a way that he'd bring it to life. Uh, like the characters were buddies he hung out with or mm. Gatsby, you know, when he when they talk about the light away in the distance and Gatsby, he yeah, would yeah. like gesture out the door. And I was like, I know nothing is out there, but <laughs> holy crap, something is out there. And <laughs> it was like, right, that's yeah. what this stuff is for. It's for the feeling right. of it. And right. we really, you know, I'm speaking truly from the, the business perspective here. We really like to optimize away the mm. feeling. We really mm. like to remove the personal perspective or the challenger perspective or the inspiring yeah. perspective because it doesn't feel quote unquote practical, which I, I would yeah, I would push back on because what's what's something you can put in practice more than feeling inspired and having it affect everything you do or understanding good story structure and how to execute that when you communicate 
one-to-one or one-to-many. I mean, these things are practical as hell. They have such power. So yeah. someone like like Shred uh, showed me what this work is actually for. And, and my job to honor his legacy, because unfortunately he's no longer with us, is to carry that with me, to try and infuse yeah. that in the work I do, despite all these effects of you know industrialized education or best practice mm-hmm. laden work, despite those things, trying to remove the desire to yeah. emote, the desire to push and have vision and opine and you know the desire to express, but in such a way that you lead people. It's not just a little hobby on the side. Great if you have that, but using the creative craft to instill in others something that empowers and inspires them so they take action on the back end. And that's really what it's for here. It's for sparking action. That's what stories are about. They're vehicles for bringing out some sort of tension or problem and then resolving them and encouraging others to go along with you too. Speaking of role models, tell me about the book you're choosing to read from us today. A character that looms large in my life, in my storytelling career, and in, in, in many things, even the entertainment that I consume, is Anthony Bourdain, like very many mm. millions of people. Um, perhaps unlike many millions of people, I am of the belief that the business world deserves Bourdain-like storytelling. Nice. And so I, you know, I mentioned this mission of mine. Well, the, the approach yeah. I have to that mission is to tell a lot of stories and is to try and bring yeah. these kinds of stories that he told uh, in his books, in his TV shows, on stages. I got to see him speak a couple times live. Um, yeah. Try and bring that stuff to the workplace. Because just like Bourdain helped us understand nuance and meaning in, in seemingly day-to-day moments, we yes. have those moments every day in work. But oftentimes work content is whatever, screaming about Elon Musk, Bitcoin, and Facebook one more time. <laughs> or... Yeah vapid Instagram influencers posting meaningless quotes that sound nice and get liked, but ultimately don't change you at all. <laughs> right. So like Bourdain right. brought forth such meaning from the seemingly day to day. And so I aspire to do that in my storytelling. Well, how did Bourdain change you? I'm going to hear the two pages, but you know, that, that statement around stories change yeah. people. Yeah. How, how has he changed you? I think he was my introduction to creative nonfiction. Mm. Um, not the formal introduction per se. I had a college class actually about creative nonfiction. And I remember reading Kazuo Ishiguro and all these other writers, but it was sort of like he took the colloquial tone that I wanted to write in, um, which I got from sports, you know, Bill Simmons and writers like that, Rick Riley, and applied it to these kinds of very personal narratives that still like Mm. exposed you to ideas and feelings. And, 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 I would say tiny stories with big ideas. Mm. He wasn't ultimately writing about, and this is where his travel show, I think makes people forget this. His writing and even his show was not really about some earth shattering thing that he was discovering or experiencing. Even if he was visiting in a location that seems exotic to you. Yeah. The parts unknown name of his show, the the unknown (laughs) parts were just sitting with a family and going deeper and getting to know them and finding these ideas and moments mm. that contained a lot of meaning that contained big ideas and helped change you um but he was finding them in the in the seemingly routine right so again that's that's very applicable to our work so that's what he showed me i think that's how he changed my approach to story it's you know tiny stories told in such ways that you see the big idea and the big impact of them beautiful 
and I can see the book. I love how battered it is and well yes. loved it is. So the book um, is the book is Kitchen Confidential. That's the one I yeah. pulled from. And uh, how did you choose the two pages? Honestly, it was it was pretty much just whatever stuck with me. I, I mentioned I'm trying to explore what makes work memorable. These yeah. were, among other moments in the book, probably the mm. moment that loomed largest was the one I'll I'll be reading to you. Perfect. Well, why don't I why don't I make a quick introduction and then you can launch into it? Sure. Uh, Jay Kunzo, uh, host of the podcast Unthinkable, amongst other things, reading from Anthony Bourdain's very wonderful book Kitchen Confidential, published in I think 2008. Uh, Jay, over to you. At six in the morning, we boarded Monsieur Saint-Georges' small wooden vessel with our picnic baskets and our sensible footwear. He was a crusty old bastard, dressed like my uncle in ancient denim coveralls, epidriles, and a beret. He had a leathery, tanned, and windblown face, hollow cheeks, and the tiny broken blood vessels on nose and cheeks that everyone seemed to have from drinking so much of the local Bordeaux. He hadn't fully briefed his guests on what was involved in these daily travails. We putt-putted out to a buoy marking his underwater oyster park, a fenced-off section of Bay Bottom, and we sat, and sat, and sat in the roaring August sun, waiting for the tide to go out. The idea was to float the boat over the stockaded fence walls and then sit there until the boat slowly sank with the water level until it rested on the basin floor. At this point, Monsieur Senjor and his guests, presumably, would rake the oysters, collect a few good specimens for sale in port, and remove any parasites that might be endangering his crop. There was, I recall, still about two feet of water left before the hull of the boat settled on dry ground and we could walk about the park. We'd already polished off the brie and the baguettes and down the Evian, but I was still hungry and characteristically said so. Monsieur Saint-Jour, on hearing this, as if challenging his American passengers, inquired in his thick Girondes accent if any of us would care to try an oyster. My parents hesitated. I doubt they'd realize they might actually have to eat one of the raw slimy things we were currently floating over. My little brother recoiled in horror. But I, in the proudest moment of my young life, stood up smartly, grinning with defiance, and volunteered to be the first. And in that unforgettably sweet moment in my personal history, that one moment still more alive for me than so many of the other firsts that followed, first pussy, first joint, first day in high school, first published book or any other thing, I attained glory. Monsieur Saint-Jour beckoned me over to the gunwale, where he leaned over, reached down until his head nearly disappeared underwater and emerged holding a single silt-encrusted oyster, huge and irregularly shaped in his rough claw-like fist. With a snubby, rust-covered oyster knife, he popped the thing open and handed it to me, everyone watching now, my little brother shrinking away from this glistening, vaguely sexual-looking object, still dripping and nearly alive. I took it in my hand, tilted the shell back into my mouth as instructed by the now beaming Monsieur Saint-Jour, and with one bite and a slurp, wolfed it down. It tasted of seawater, of brine and flesh, and somehow, of the future. Everything was different now. Everything. I'd not only survived, I'd enjoyed. This, I knew, was the magic of which I had until now only been dimly and spitefully aware. I was hooked. My parents' shudders, my little brother's expression of unrestrained revulsion and amazement only reinforced the sense that I had somehow become a man. I had had an adventure, 
tasted forbidden fruit and everything that followed in my life, the food, the long and often stupid and self-destructive chase for the next thing, whether it was drugs or sex or some other new sensation, would all stem from this moment. I'd learned something viscerally, instinctively, spiritually, even in some small precursive way, sexually, and there was no turning back. The genie was out of the bottle. My life as a cook and as a chef had begun. Oh, that is fantastic. Uh, beautifully read, well, well navigated around all the kind of French words. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say um, not, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is it about that story that is resonant for you, Jay? I mean, what really happens? Like, let's start there. What actually happened there? He was a petulant young American traveler with his family in France that up until that moment really hadn't appreciated food. He went out on a tiny little boat, which if you grew up on the shore in Connecticut, like I did, pretty routine and mundane. Mm -hmm. And they had finished their snacks and were starting to complain about being hungry. What a childlike slash adult J-like thing to do. (laughs) Where are the snacks? And the guy running the boat handed him an oyster and he tried Mm -hmm. it. So another way to look at this is like, Anthony Bourdain, when did you first start thinking more critically about food? Uh, it was actually my first oyster. I was uh, traveling with my family in this little French village yeah. and, and I had a first oyster. You know, it was tasted like this. So I'll never forget it. That's one way to tell the story. Yeah. Instead, like, you, get, you get two pages of power instead. Two pages yeah. of taking a tiny little moment and understanding that these are the moments, like this, that's what life is. Right. So if we think life has meaning, then inherently all these little moments that just make up our life have meaning. It can't just be the big visible dots along the map. It's Mm. all the little things in between. It's that gradation of drawing the line second after second, moment after moment. Like that's where the meaning can come from. The problem is we don't often dive deep enough or reflect on it or tell the stories of those moments to then extrapolate out. What are the insights? What did we learn? What changed? How are we feeling? Right. I mean, this, this is a moment just like, like an oyster to me. It's just like dense with nuance and feeling and goodness. And the future. <laughs> and the future. Jay, how do we learn to recognize our own heroic stories? Because this, this is a heroic story. This is the moment of coming to a crossroad and going left instead of right and everything changes. And I think you're right when you say too often we miss those. We don't we don't mythologize our, our ourselves and we miss the chance to to be on our heroic quest. How 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 do you help or how have you found yourself finding and naming your own stories? You know, you mentioned mentors earlier, and mm. another mentor I've had professionally is a marketing speaker and author by the name of Andrew Davis who I think is one of the smart, he's, he's like the Willy Wonka of, of marketing ideas. It's incredible. He just, he just goes traipsing through an industry and finds all these like whimsical ideas and pulls out all these frameworks. But what's really interesting about Drew is the way he thinks is, is very much like his work is a quest. So he probably yeah. has one career long grand quest, but then he has these little trips he goes on, little adventures, little investigations to explore these subtopics under his large topic. And so what opened up possibility for me was not only experiencing in stories like the one I just read, yeah, but also understanding that you can spot those a lot easier if your lens through which you see the world 
changes. And so the way mm. Drew coached me to change my lens is to think of the work as this constant exploration of something, right? right. So the macro level mission I have is to help others make what matters. Okay. That yeah. may or may not be interesting to you. Maybe right now you're more interested in this idea of resonance. Like how do I connect deeper with those on the receiving end of my work to grow my business or leave my legacy or have this project su succeed, right? So maybe that's what gets you into my work. Regardless yeah. of the, the macro level lens or, or the current lens, I'm now, that's what's in the back of my mind at all times. And so I'm moving through the wor world and I see, you know, the other day I was mm -hmm. going down a one-way road and I saw a woman <laughs> hanging out of her car with the door open. And it was this like really big black truck, like you know, Ford F-150 style that had yeah. been propped up to be even bigger. And her door was just <laughs> wide open and her leg was out. And like cars make noise. I don't have an electric vehicle, although I aspire to get one. So my car was making noise not 10 yeah. feet from her leg and she still didn't budge. And it's like, I, so now I have these details and there's like, there's something there. It could be a yeah. metaphor. It could just be a playful description. It could be yeah. creating a character out of this woman and her truck. There's just something there. And how do I apply that to the journey I'm on to understand resonance mm. or to help people make what matters? I don't know, but that's a thread I'm going to save for a later date and I'll pull it the next time right. I open up my laptop to write, you know? So with Bourdain, with his book, with his approach, those tiny yeah. moments, you kind of understand not only how to spot them, but where to take them if you understand the mm. larger mission or premise at play. Right. Years ago, I, I created um, a little video called, what was it called? The, the Getting stuck in the, is it the messy middle? Which is like you're, you're neither doing one thing nor the other. And uh, what I love that you're pointing us to is the power of the, the, the tiny things in the moment but also the bigger picture as well and having to see both of those to, to plot the journey. How did you, how did you get clear on the bigger picture for you? You know, cause most people aren't articulate as you are to say, look, this is the, this is the life quest, <laughs> helping people make things that matter. Did it just slowly come into focus? Was there a moment where you just wrote it down and went, that's the thing, stick that above my, my computer screen and look at it every day. Right, right. When, when did it come to you? Well, the metaphor will continue here because I was talking about how this changes how you see the world. So how yeah, do you yeah. understand what glasses to wear? Not only the, the mm. frames, but also the prescription. You go number one or number two, number two or number three, <laughs> right? And then you try on different right. frames. Like, does this look good? I don't know. Does this look good? Then you ask people close to you, does this look good on my face? Does this look good? That's the process. It's trial and error. It's experimentation. Right. And a lot of us want the one pithy framework or answer to be like, oh, that's how I do it in theory. I go zero to 60 like this. But I don't think that's that's not reality. I mean, right. like looking at my early career working in corporations in marketing, I learned a lot. I gained a lot of yeah. skills, made a lot of connections. I was also frustrated as hell for most of those jobs because mm. I was trying on these things that didn't fit. And then yeah. eventually I find something and go, oh, well, that's a thing that brings me energy instead of draining me of that mm -hmm. energy. Let me pursue that further. And, you know, my podcast Unthinkable is a good kind of microcosm because it started as I want to help people break from the stale conventions of marketing and do something more creative. So I told a bunch yes. of stories like that. And then I start talking to my listeners and I'm like, wait, you're a CTO. You're an accountant. What are you doing listening to this show? And they would tell me more about what they were experiencing and who they were yeah, and why they yeah. liked it. And I went, okay, so it's not about the creative side of marketing. It's about craft-driven work. People who see themselves mm. as craftspeople, no matter what they do. They could work on a spreadsheet. They could paint 
something, they could write a novel, they could work in marketing. And so it just yeah. kept evolving. So it's messy. You know, the jungle analogy is another one that applies here too. It's I'm hacking yeah, yeah. away through the jungle. That's my creative practice. And someone might say, try going left here. And that's a good mentor. Or I might uncover a path that lets me run freer for a time, but then I hit another snag in the future. Mm. And as long as I'm trying to articulate to you what the vision is, where is this going? Why am I doing this? And invite you along. I get wonderful signal feedback, you know, people course correcting me all around me. But none of this happens unless you ship a lot of work. I mean, I think think that's the punchline to all this is like having the consistent practice to put out the work into the world to aerate your ideas and refine them over time. Like that's everything to me. You know, there's a, a quote I love, which is inspiration is when your past suddenly makes sense. <laughs> Where you're like, <laughs> oh, that's why I had that job that sucked and that job that didn't suck. And I met that person and I had that course. It kind of comes together in a moment of remembering and forgetting and clarification that says, oh, this feels like the, the resonant thing for you. Well, I always pictured motivation as driven from behind you. You know, it's somebody pushing you often in a corporate setting with a whip. Inspiration (laughs) to me is like you're getting pulled forward. Like I can't not figure that out. That's why like when you think about being inspired to write, I don't think it's like the inspiration is this huge idea, this lightning strike moment, the muse visited you, all these myths. I I, I don't think that's inspiration for creative purposes. I think what it is, is I can't not write right now. I'm Mm. drawn to it. Like I have to see how do I articulate this complex idea in writing? Or I don't understand this concept. Let me try to write something about it and force myself to try and understand. Yeah. Or, you know, even better, it's like, I can't not write because when I don't write for a long period of time, I feel like I'm suffocating. I literally right. feel like it's a breath of fresh air to finally publish a thing. Mm. And so a lot of people are like, I want to be a writer and I'm struggling to write and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, maybe you haven't found the thing that pulls you towards it. Instead of right. looking for motivation or other external forces to push you towards it, yeah. which I don't, which I think will die eventually, it's it's better to find the magnet that draws you in, that inspiration, yes. than I think the motivation of like I need a quote, a mentor, a system, a thirty day challenge to to push me, like maybe to kickstart right. it, but that that's not sustainable. You know, talking to you, Jay, it it feels like you've you're at a let's call it a plateau of achievement which is like clarity clarity on what you're doing and the and the journey that you're on and the and the the way that you're contributing to the world i also know from you know how i understand structure and stories that you know it the 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 quest is endless (laughs) you've got to the you got to the latest place there's still a valley in front of you with jungle and mist and there's still a, a a peak and part of, you know, as they say, going into the woods is about um, meeting the next part of yourself that needs to become who you are. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know what's the, what's the quest you're on now? You know, what's the next, what's the next thing that needs to be part of Jay Kenzo? I think a lot about my body of work and just building a body of work in general. There's that famous quote Mm. from Ira Glass, for example, which is, you know, I'll paraphrase, but when you start out, especially (laughs) your gap is big. Yeah. (laughs) The gap is big between your taste and your work. And and another easier way to, I think, understand it is you can imagine better work than you can create. And I think that's always, but, and I think actually danger, a danger zone is, I can imagine this, like what I'm imagining is also exactly what I created. 
because mm. then you're in your comfort zone a little bit too much. And right. I found myself for a while through my public speaking business, through my podcast and my writing, going through the motions and those motions were getting too repetitive. And what, yeah. what the problem was is I had an old habit that was so necessary early that I need to unlearn, which is like early on, especially all these, you know, wise individuals like Ira Glass, they would encourage you do a lot of work, put in the reps consistently. You have to get over this fear of shipping. Then you have to build your body of work. Opportunities will come. Skills will be honed, et cetera. Yeah. And I agree. But I think you also then get past this first filter of like, am I shipping or not? And then shipping is no mm. longer a problem. And the next problem right. is, well, what am I pursuing here? Like, am I going deeper? Am right. I doing A plus work or just more B work or C yeah, or now D? Now I can do it. Should I keep doing right. it? Right. Like, how do you persist properly or mm. persist with greater joy or impact on the world. So I, I think I'm now entering a phase of my career where the practice needs to look a lot less like every week I will show up and ship this thing and I'm promising it, it's a weekly show and blah, blah, blah. And mm. I'm, I'm now thinking about what am I spending time on that is a longer time horizon, that is scarier yeah. for me to try to do, that there is not this established playbook out in the world or in my own history that I have to just try it because I'm still drawn to it, right? Um, I, I feel inspired to do it, but I don't have the mechanics yet. It feels like it's the, the jungle at once got sparse and that was dangerous. Yeah. I took a left turn. Now it's dense again. <laughs> That's kind of where I feel like I'm at. So what, what is the next level for you? What do you aspire to? I mean, I want to bring these Bordanian type stories into the workplace, into the business yeah. world. And I want to do so without selling my soul and be like, we're talking about Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and mm -hmm. Google again, or we're talking about macro level trends or tips and tricks and best practices. And, you know, I, I'd like to help people see their work better, figure out their purpose in their work, but then go turn that into creative action. And, nice. you know, the way I phrase it is I like being an arms dealer for creative scrappers. Like I'm not speaking to the people who are managing budgets and six agencies. I'm speaking to the person yeah. who's a one person shop or runs a team of 50 that they're like, well, what we do is kind of boring or well, we've done it forever this way, or I'm a yeah. solo creator or artist. And you know, what do I have to offer the world? You know, I'm just going to copy yeah. everyone else and try to do quote unquote, what works. Mm. It, and you know, there's like this tyranny of the right answer we all suffer from in the workplace. Yeah. And I think best practices are dangerous. I think they deserve to be questioned. And the goal is to find what works best for you, which often is not the quote unquote best practice. So the way I want to help people do that is not to get on a stage and shout and be like angsty about it, but it's to try and tell these stories that make you go, huh, I think I lost sight of that somewhere along the way. Thanks for reminding me. I'm back at it now. I'm focused. Or wow, I hadn't considered right. that. Like a piece of my brain is on, is on, is is like was shrouded in mystery or or shadow has been lifted. Um, thank you for that. And so, how do I do that? I'm focusing on the show. I'm focusing on unthinkable. I'm focusing on this idea of yeah. resonance, and I'm trying to push myself to find better stories in the nooks and crannies of this world, and not you know yet another similar headline to everywhere else. You can get this stuff. If it feels to me as you describe that, particularly this idea of bringing Bordanian stories into the the business world, you're you know the archetype that comes to mind is the trickster, you know, playing that disruptive role. Do you, do you have any insight, or do you know how to navigate this idea of being disruptive 
and provocative <laughs> and slyly upending things in a system that loves not that <laughs> that, that loves homeostasis sure. which is like you know a, a system an organization is set up to not be disrupted and it feels like you're trying to disrupt how do you how do you do that without the system rejecting you okay so here is the lesson that i needed to learn earlier in my in-house <laughs> career where i was just the tail wagging the dog or I, or i was petulant and that contributed to my frustration um it's really hard to create change by having all these big ideas or commands of other people that mm. force them to leap too far from where they're already at or what they think they already right. want. So an easy example is your boss. Yeah. Um, you're probably not going to convince your boss and or the larger company and its culture to change A, quickly, or B, from what they already want. What you're mm. probably more likely to succeed in doing if your goal is change, if your goal is elevating the work, if your goal is doing something better, is to show them how what they want is actually not being served by the status quo, and it's mm. far better to go with your idea. In other words, my idea gets us what we want faster, better, cheaply, right. to a higher degree, with greater impact, et cetera. Uh, I call this the green smoothie problem. If I had <laughs> handed you a smoothie, Michael, and you'd never seen a green smoothie, you would do one of two things. You'd anchor to preconceived yeah. notions, or you'd look for yeah. social proof. You'd be like, oh, right. this looks like this gross health drink at my gym. No, thank you. Um, yeah. Or you'd be like, okay, show me what people are saying about this drink. Is it popular? Is it trendy? In other words, like, give yeah. me the fact that this is essentially conventional, right? It's a commodity. Yeah. And yeah. that's no way to make it's change, okay. right? I'm not going to lose face yeah, by, yeah. by drinking the green smoothie. So by handing you my idea too quickly, too soon, before you're ready, not, I create this information disadvantage that I'm putting you at. And to fill in that mm. gap, you're like, I need to just think about my own history preconceived right. notions and the past, bad ways to improve the world, and also, or look for other sort of like social moments of social proof. In other words, it's already happening. Right. It's already trendy. Again, hard to push you to the new. So what I need to do is say, Michael, you know how you told me last week you want to be healthy and you told me all these drinks and foods are really gross. Here's what I'm thinking. I took some kale, some mango, some mango. I took a little coconut oil. We have a blender in the kitchen and in no time flat, I made this drink. So if you'd like to be healthy and you believe that a lot of these health drinks and foods are gross, here's a green smoothie. Want to drink it? Look at you using old school marketing on me to rise above marketing. <laughs> I was abducted by marketing and sales, experimented on, but I was given like a metal <laughs> arm and super strength that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And now I know how to speak that stuff to that exactly. stuff and use that stuff for good. Like I was, I think right. I was temporarily not on the force for good. <laughs> and now that I'm awake again, I'd like to use this stuff for good. Right. And I think Whoa. we're all better off wading into those waters of like, yes, mm -hmm. the business world. Yes. The for-profit world. Yes. Capitalism and using those forces as sources of leverage for yeah. good. Right. So that's yeah. what I'm trying to do here. I get it. Well, welcome to the light. Um, <laughs> Jay, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. Um, let me ask you this. Is there, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? I think there's, there's some degree, I heard this on a podcast from the comedian Mike, Mike Birbiglia, where he was interviewing I Rachel. I love him. Oh, he's incredible. Um, he was yeah. interviewing Rachel Bloom of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And he was asking her to explain her thinking and her process. And she said, when comedians talk about comedy, there's a fair bit of kabuki theater that goes on. 
and I, I, I know it's kind of a throwaway or, or funny line, but I, I took that to heart. Like when creative people or successful people or entrepreneurs or executives talk about their process or their ideas, there's a fair bit of like exaggerated motion. And sometimes that helps you mm. see something complex a little easier because there's you're going above and beyond to exaggerate that motion. But oftentimes it shrouds what went on under the hood uh, in right. this like aura or myth. And I don't want to do that. All of this started for me as just, I think I like to make stuff and mm. I like to make myself feel stuff when I make that stuff. And I think I can find others who feel like I did. And like I mentioned very briefly, the author Kazuo Ishiguro, yes. and he had this wonderful quote about storytelling when he accepted his Nobel prize in, I think 2017, where he said, stories are like saying to others, this is how it feels to me. Do you understand what I'm mm. saying? Does this feel this way to you too? And, th and that's it. It's really, I think it can at least start that simply. And as it gets complex and you start to lace it with frameworks and big ideas and change making concepts and all these things, we can lose yeah. sight of that. But I think if we reset to it, that's enough. You know, like Bourdain talked about asking simple questions and telling simple stories and, and not yeah. doing workmanlike storytelling, but trying avant-garde or different or out there ideas that, that just interested him. And I think that's all we need is I'm trying to say, this is how this felt to me. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, am I communicating yeah. clearly? Okay. Did it also feel that way to you? Because this is actually a conversation, even if it feels broadcast. And now, given that greater understanding, I get a next attempt and I could be better for it. That's it. I think it can be that simple. When Jay talks about the little things, I'm reminded of a connected insight, this time from the Harvard academic Teresa Amabile. And in her book, The Progress Principle, she reveals that people find meaning in their work by making a little bit of progress on something that matters most days. And this is the reason why at the end of my day, my working day, I have an alarm on my phone that chimes. It's at 5.24 on Monday through Thursday, 3.24 p.m. on Friday. And I've tinkered with the alarm message. So when it goes off, a little message pops up that says, stop working and celebrate the day. And typically what I do is I stop working and I open my little journal and I write down one, two, three things that I just want to remember that I actually did the day. I would say this, it's this little bit of progress on the little things that seem to lead to the bigger progress on the bigger things. Thank you so much to MBS for having me on his show. Man, it was just a fun interview. It's just the power of a premise thoughtfully considered and developed. And I hope you got as much from listening to it as I did from appearing on it. Anyway, if you like what you heard, consider listening to Two Pages. You can find it in whatever podcast player you're using right now. You can also follow MBS on Twitter at MBS underscore works or say hi to me on Twitter at Jay Acunzo, and let me know what you think of the show. If you liked it, share it with just one friend, won't you? Just one. This is an independent labor of love. Your evangelism of this podcast is everything to me and to my ability to keep the show going and growing. 
And speaking of growing, if you're trying to elevate your creativity, your storytelling, and your ability to produce a higher caliber of creative to build your brand or career, consider my one-on-one coaching and consulting. You can visit jayaconzo.com and click coaching at the top, or if you're not ready yet, subscribe to my free newsletter while you're there, jayaconzo.com. Thank you so much for listening to this show. I'm back next time with the story of an atypical business relationship, two very quirky people who started to ride a rocket ship trajectory, which they then decided to eject from right as they were reaching exit velocity. But until we're back with that story, keep making what matters. See ya. Thank you once again to our sponsor, The Juice. They're like Spotify for B2B content. I think somewhere along the way, marketing organizations and even individuals who create content for other marketers started to lose sight of the fact that the job is to help educate your audience. They stopped putting the help first and started to over-engineer some kind of lead, click, placement on Google search. You get it. The Juice believes in tearing that old system down and rebuilding B2B marketing to be what it should be for, which is learning, great ideas, and great resources. So if you are in marketing today, to find some of the best and smartest thinking about your craft, visit thejuicehq.com, sign up for free, and get lots of great resources from some of the brightest minds in your field right now. That's thejuicehq.com.